Today's episode contains depictions of violence against Indigenous people. We ask that you use your best judgment before listening. If you are an Indigenous person, please consider a form of self-care after listening. Thank you. As promised, this season we will be covering a lot more historical true crime stories. Today's story is about the 60s scoop, which was the name given for a period of time in Canada when government policies allowed for Indigenous children to be taken from their families and placed into the care of white families. This is your reminder that just because something is legal does not mean it's not criminal, especially when it comes to government policies in the U.S. and Canada regarding Indigenous peoples. I'm Chelsea Locklear. And I'm Brittany Hunt. And this is the Red Justice Project. Hometown hero, lost alive. Today's episode really is a continuation of one of the episodes that we covered last season. So last season, um, we covered the story of the Kamloops Indian Residential School in Canada. Last spring, a mass grave of at least 215 children was found at that specific residential school. And since then, over 7,000 Indigenous children have been found buried in mass graves at Indian residential schools throughout the U.S. and Canada. As a reminder, these boarding schools started in the late 1800s, and the last one didn't even close until the mid-1990s in Canada. The majority turned into day schools around the 1950s, and that's when new policies to destroy Indigenous familial units and cultural ties were established by individual Canadian provinces. These policies sought to continue the assimilation of Indigenous cultures and communities furthering Indigenous genocide. Yep, and it's important to note that there was no nationwide policy for actually removing Indigenous children. Each province had their own foster and adoption programs and policies, and most of the programs we're going to talk about today, they started in the 1950s and lasted until the 1980s. So over that period of time, an estimated 20,000 Indigenous children were taken from their families and communities and placed primarily with white middle-class families in Canada. This experience left many adoptees with a lost sense of cultural identity. The physical and emotional separation from their birth families continues to affect adult adoptees and Indigenous communities to this day. And as mentioned before, the program started in the 1950s, but the majority of Indigenous children were adopted or fostered out during the 1960s. So to understand the impact of the success, quote-unquote success, of the scoop, I would like to share this specific statistic. Indigenous children only make up 1% of the children in protective services in the 1950s nationwide, but by late 1960s, they made up 
just over one-third or 34% of all children in the Canadian adoption and foster care system. Many Indigenous children were also adopted out to the United States. Chelsea and I actually both listened to the podcast called Missing and Murdered by Connie Walker, and the second season is called Finding Cleo. It focuses on Connie helping a First Nation sibling uh, group find their sister Cleo, who had you know, been adopted out at some point um, in Canada, and the siblings were a part of the 60 Scoop. So both Cleo and her brother Johnny were adopted out to the United States to white families, and three other siblings were also adopted out from Little Pine First Nation in Saskatchewan. And I won't spoil how the season ends, but I highly recommend that you listen to that season if you want to understand more about the lasting impacts of the 60 Scoop. And I think if I remember from the podcast episodes, the siblings were actually at their grandmother's house when they were taken, you know, but they were very much cared for and loved for. You know, you hear firsthand accounts from the siblings during the podcast episodes. The social workers um, who served during the 60 Scoops were often uneducated in the cultural uh, ways of Indigenous communities, of our familial structures, and our kinship ties. So when I think about these Indigenous family structures, you know, I think about my own family and I think about other Lumbee families that I know. You know, it's not uncommon to see grandparents raise grandchildren or for cousins or aunts and uncles to be heavily involved in a child's upbringing. It's completely normal, especially in situations where parents can't always provide for their children in the way that other family members can. Yeah, that's definitely true. My own maternal grandmother definitely helped to raise me. I lived in the house with her and my mama, and so she was really instrumental in my raising and, you know, in me growing up. And also my niece and nephew, who I've mentioned many times on this podcast, are technically not my niece and nephew by, I guess, like European or white standards. They're actually my second cousins. So if they're hearing this right now, they're probably laughing because sometimes they say, can we just call you cousin, Brittany? But, you know, I'm their aunt by indigenous standards and also by the the place that I think I take up in their life, because a lot of times our aunts and uncles are really like our second mothers or second fathers. And I definitely feel that way for them. But just to continue what Chelsea is saying, social workers often took indigenous children from their families because they didn't model middle class Euro-Canadian values and the ways that most Euro-Canadian families lived at the time. So a great example of this would be a white social worker walking into an indigenous family's home that lived on a traditional diet of fish, dried game, and berries. Really a much fresher and healthier diet, you know, free from the preservatives and store-bought commodities found in the pantries of their Euro-Canadian counterparts and probably also in my pantry as well. But social workers seeing these sparse fridges and cupboards in indigenous homes would just assume that the families didn't have enough food to provide for their children and they would then just scoop them out of their homes. Again, these children were taken without consent from the families and their communities and indigenous families lacked any kind of power because social workers had Canadian law and policies on their side and they could use the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is their their form of police in Canada, to help forcibly remove children. This left Indigenous families helpless and hopeless because they were often denied access to information about where their children were placed and how to reconnect with them. Social workers were not required to provide any information until 1980, and that was when the Child, Family, and Community Services Act was passed, which required social workers to notify tribal band councils if a child was removed from their community. 
And when I was doing research for this episode, all I could think about was, you know, someone taking my children away from me without my consent and just the sheer pain in the heart of so many mothers and fathers. I read the story of Robert Kalkman, who was a 60 Scoop adoptee. He said that his only early childhood memory is a woman standing on the street outside of his home and his adopted father always going outside to yell at her, begging her to leave. He said he could remember her continually coming back and staring in the window. The woman was his biological mother, Kathleen, just trying to see him. Robert and his sister were taken from her without her consent from their grandfather's house on the Manitou Reservation while she was shopping just 30 minutes away in another town. Later, Robert learned that his mother had actually been killed while hitchhiking from Ontario to British Columbia. She was hitchhiking to try to find Robert after learning that his adopted family had moved. And those of you not familiar with Canadian geography should just know that, you know, we're talking well over a thousand miles when thinking about like where Ontario is compared to British Columbia on the West Coast. Kathleen was just trying to travel to get to her son. Robert is quoted in a CBC article saying, she died trying to find me. It's an identity you lose the moment she is gone. And Brittany, again, I think about how closely our identities are tied to our parents and our family as Indigenous people, how I can tell a Lumbee person my name and they might not identify with it. But if I share my mama's name and they know her, it becomes an instant connection. I become so much more than Chelsea Locklear. I become Trina's daughter and, you know, Darcy's granddaughter. And I think about all of those Indigenous children that, you know, lost that connection in the 60s scoop to their communities and their parents. Yeah, I really relate to that, too. I was even thinking, like, you know, how when you're doing, like, a, what do they call them, like, icebreaker, or when you're trying to get to know somebody, or when you're doing a reflective activity to think about who you are, oftentimes when I think, like, you know, who is Brittany, or, like, who is Brittany Hunt, I'll start with, like, well, my grandma was such and such, and my granddaddy was such and such, and they're from here, and then I finally will get down to me because I feel like all of their lives are so tied to mine that I'm I'm not I mean I am a separate person but at the same in the same sense I'm also not at the same time I am because they were and that's the way indigenous communities are really set up is we are so connected to each other even to our cousins like we mentioned earlier and our aunts and uncles and who you are is so much a reflection of who your family also is And then it's also speculated that Robert and his sister Diane were taken from their mother because Ontario social workers thought she was too young to raise raise a child. And um, they thought she didn't have the financial means to take care of two children. She was only 14 when she had Diane and 15 when she had Robert, but she still lived at home with her parents and had them to help raise her children in a traditional way. Diane is quoted saying they took them away because, and I quote, she was native and lived a traditional lifestyle. She couldn't provide that. She had an apartment or a house. It wasn't in her name. It was in her parents' name. She couldn't prove income because they hunted, trapped, you know, they had a trap line and fished for food. They grew their own vegetables. They picked berries. They picked herbs. They didn't have a nine to five job. They lived on the reserve. And again, without any formal training, social workers could make baseless assumptions about uh, a child's well-being and take them from their families. Traditional ways were completely ignored, and honestly, it just shows how racist the mindset was at the time to think that a Euro-Canadian way of life was better than a traditionally Indigenous way of life. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I think you have to be kind of willfully ignorant to ignore the way a group of folks who are different than you lives and just also heartless to not attempt to keep children with their families. You know, Robert ended up having a very tumultuous relationship with his adopted family, and they actually turned back over custody of Robert to the state when he was a teenager, and he ended up bouncing from group homes to foster care, and, you know, it created some really troubling years for him. He eventually went to college, and he married an indigenous woman, and I'll just share one last quote from the CBC article, and he says, you know, my wife, she has brothers and sisters a mother and a father my kids look at me and say where's your mom where's your dad and you know you got to look at them and say all you got is me and again it hurts my heart to know you know that 60 scoop didn't just affect him but his children as well and their future generations because um you know while again there's no nationwide program specifically for adopting indigenous children there were just so many different initiatives in each province that this was a widespread thing And Brittany, do you want to share a little bit about the AIM program that was in Saskatchewan? Yes. So the Adopt Indian Métis or AIM program was a project started to specifically promote the adoption of indigenous children by white families starting in 1967. It was a targeted transracial adoption program designed to take away indigenous children and place them with white families. The CBC News ran television segments showcasing the program, and there were marketing campaigns on the radio, TV, and in newspapers encouraging the adoption of Métis children. The AIM advertisements were an effective marketing tool to reach prospective families, and the program promised fast adoptions in as little as 10 weeks. Just 10 weeks, y'all. So just think about how quickly an indigenous child's life could be turned upside down. One week you're with your family, and then two and a half months later you're adopted and you're expected to adapt to another family's way of life and the way they lived. It was reported that in 1969, Métis people made up 7.5% of the population in Saskatchewan, but Métis children represented almost 42% of all children in the foster care system in the province. Even as these programs have ended over the years, and there are certainly more protections in place, Indigenous children continue to overrepresent the number of children in foster care systems throughout Canada. And the 1980s marked a changing tide for Indigenous children and families in Canada after decades of fighting for their protections. So in 1985, policies changed to make sure that precedence was given to extended family members and other Indigenous families in the child's tribal community. Justice Edward Kimmelman would release a review of Indigenous child apprehension called No Safe Place, a review committee on Indian MAT adoptions and placements. And Judge uh, Kimmelman, he actually reviewed every single Native child's file who had been adopted by an out-of-province family. Judge Kimmelman stated that cultural genocide has been taking place in a systematic, routine manner. The report was highly critical of what is called an abysmal lack of sensitivity to children and families. And the Kimmelman report would actually mark the end, kind of, of the 60 Scoop era. Because later in 1990, the First Nations Child and Family Services Program gave tribal authority over child and family services to individual bands. While new programs being implemented throughout the country were considered a good thing, the lasting effect on Indigenous people and communities is still very much evident today. I would like to share the words of Gina Cardinal, who left this message on a CBC article written recently about the 60 Scoop. Gina commented on the forum, quote, I am a 60 Scoop survivor. 
My mother wasn't allowed to see me, much less hold me after giving birth to me. I went to 11 different foster homes while my mother cried for me until we were reunited. When I finally found my way back home, I was told that my little sister had been sterilized in the 1990s and my uncle was murdered by a white supremacist also in the 1990s. We are still missing our brother who never made it home. We don't know if he is living or dead. Two generations at least of my family before me were sent to residential schools. Because of the 60s scoop in residential schools, my mother wasn't allowed to raise me, her mother wasn't allowed to raise her, and her mother wasn't allowed to raise her. My children are the first generation in my family line to be born free. My children were all born in the 2000s, so I am allowed to keep them. Canada treated indigenous mothers like dogs who had puppies. They all needed to be rehomed as soon as possible. Unquote. And I think the saddest part for me was her saying that her children are the first generation to be born free. That just broke my heart to think about of all the families who lost their ties to each other, to uh, their language, to their traditions, family recipes, the sense of belonging that can only come from people who look like you, you know, that share the same ancestors as you. You know, it truly is a heartbreaking cycle. And when we're still seeing in Canada today, when I- I was doing research for this episode, I came across a related article about the number of Indigenous women and youth incarcerated in Canada. So even though Indigenous people make up less than 5% of the Indigenous population in Canada, almost 50% of all women incarcerated in Canada are Indigenous, y'all. 50% of the women's prison population. And it made me think, you know, where are these women's children? Because surely a fair amount of these indigenous women are most likely mothers. You know, there's a huge effort right now for prison reform in Canada, but I can't help but think how all of these issues are all connected from residential schools to the 60 scoop to over-policing and incarcerating indigenous people, you know, just all continuations of the same tactics used by the government to continue the mistreatment and genocide of indigenous people. And also tactics to to just separate us from each other. That seems to be another major point. So when you think about residential schools, they're trying to purposely get children, our children away from us. And the 60 scoop is the exact same thing. And, you know, everything's just all interconnected. And something for those of us in the United States, you know, that we're not really made aware of all the time, especially the continuing policies that still plague First Nations reserves today. And just like indigenous reservations here in the United States, reserves in Canada have challenges with poverty, access to basic resources such as clean water and a loss of access to native homelands that have dramatically changed the cultural identity and ways of life for many indigenous communities. And the 60 scoop just adds to that historical trauma. And I'd like to share a quote from um, one more 60 Scoop survivor. She said, I have children of my own, and it kills me that I can't pass on those teachings and that knowledge that should be their birthright. To me, that's what's most important. I'm going to be somebody else's ancestor one day, and I want my future generation to know that I fought for their rights. And another thing I want to end with today is just this realization that the 60 scoop is not just a Canadian issue, that it was definitely happening in the United States as well. Um, A a letter went viral a few years ago that um, proved that in 1952 you could buy a native child for $10 out west. 
and um, I say buy because it was technically an adoption but oftentimes people would buy the children either for nefarious purposes um, sexual molestation or any other kind of nefarious reason or they would buy them um, to have a live-in maid I read a few accounts of survivors that said that the family just bought them so that they could cook and clean for the family so um, these adoptions were often never pure in nature and another thing is that Lumbee people were also adopted out or sent away I have a relative who I won't name who um, lived with a Mormon family during the summers uh, for a while and her brother also went but had some problems and so he was sent back to live with his, his own family here in North Carolina and so this definitely was something that has happened to Lumbee people as well that's not um, I guess as as much publicized or written about. Yeah, and one last thing we kind of didn't mention throughout the episode, but Brittany, I was thinking about the whole time is this connection um, of the 60 Scoop and of residential schools um, to the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Movement and how, um, you know, all of this is tied together. Because if we keep looking at it, we think about like the women and mothers and the roles that they play. Of course, fathers are important, but we know how important our women are to us and, you know, how, you know, all of this really affected the children being taken away from their mothers right from hospitals how mothers were being sterilized so they couldn't even have more kids and how all of that yeah. kind of interconnected um you know it's it really is all so interconnected that you can't talk about one without really talking about the other and even how you mentioned the of 50 percent of the people who are in jail in in what was the province in canada you said in saskatchewan in Saskatchewan are indigenous women and so there definitely is a concerted effort to separate mothers from their children or make it impossible for these women to be mothers at all and that is going to prevent futures of indigenous people from existing and so there's a direct attack not only on indigenous people in the present but on indigenous people in the future as well yeah and so we'll end it on that note because I think Brittany and I could go on a tangent about this all day, but we want to thank you yes. all for listening. Source materials and show notes can be found on our website, redjusticepodcast.com. And there are many resources. I just want to say to learn more about the 60 scoop, tons of YouTube videos of residential survivors telling their story. And there's currently a class action lawsuit and settlement for survivors. So if you want to learn more about that, um, the official website for that is 60 scoop settlement.info. And you can follow us on social media at red justice podcast. If you want to listen to more of us and we appreciate those taking the time to learn about indigenous true crime stories and how they're part of the foundation of our, nation and Canada and they reverberate throughout our indigenous communities today this is the Red Justice Project and also sorry wanted to note that um, we'll be taking off next Monday in observance of Juneteenth so we'll release the next episode after that on Monday June 27th thanks again
God we pray.